From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Professor Dean Franco from the Humanities Institute at Wake Forest University about the efficacy of obtaining a humanities degree in the 21st century. And after that, Emily G. from the Center for American Progress returns to discuss the latest developments to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Annually, there is predictably a year-end study declaring that majoring in either liberal arts or humanities are useless pursuits. And given the current economic climate, it would be hard to argue against such thinking. But it does beg the question, should a linear analysis between undergraduate major pursued and the resulting job afterward serve as the best way to ascertain the return on investment for a college degree. Joining us to discuss the humanities and their importance is Professor Dean Franco. Professor Franco is Director of the Humanities Institute at Wake Forest University. Professor Dean Franco, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. It's good to talk to you. Let's begin with you offering a, a brief definition of the humanities. Sure. Uh, the humanities is an academic field of study. Uh, it is comprised of several disciplines that I think people would be familiar with, literature, history, religion, classics, and philosophy. Um, the humanities studies uh, the human experience as it's been represented in language and through images. And so to study the humanities, you are necessarily um, involved in interpretation and critical thinking. And I think those are the two skill sets that really set apart the humanities from other other disciplines. You're really working with language. You're really working with representation. So you're always working within that practice of interpretation and critically engaging uh, the difficulties and the complexities of symbols and sign systems. Now, as you well know, um, many would say that that won't, that won't get you a job. So what would you consider the benefits of a degree in humanities? You know, I have to tell you the truth, Byron. Um, it will get you a job. We have uh, business leaders and uh, people from the professional schools come to us all the time and tell us they're looking for humanities majors. I'm sitting right now in the office of the Humanities Institute, and our endowment, a big part of our endowment, was uh, a gift given to us by an alum who was a um, He's currently in, uh, in the oil business. He's a businessman. But he was a humanities major at Wake Forest, and he said he loved the humanities. If you come to work for him, he'll teach you the oil business. Uh, but what he wants is he wants people who know how to think about human cultures. Um, he wants people who can study and think through language complexities. And we hear this all the time from people. Uh, humanities majors get jobs. Uh, well, and then, but then there's always the retort, well, given how much – college costs, 
some offer the major going to discipline in the humanities won't won't don't produce or justify those costs, those rising costs. And, and you would say to them, in addition to what you just said, what else would you say to them? That- well, college costs are a real problem all over the place too, aren't they? And I guess we're talking about different different kinds of costs for different kinds of colleges. You know, you've got private school tuition, and then there's public school tuition, which is quite a bit less. Um, I think that especially if you're going to pay top dollar, at a private school for your tuition, you need to take full advantage of whatever the curriculum is there, Uh, by which I mean you want your faculty working for you. You want all the engines of the university, be they the internships and the professional development centers, you want them all working for you. And that means that you want to be academically a real star. You want to be a powerhouse yourself academically so you can take advantage of everything, everything that's going on. Now, some students are going to be inclined to major in, I don't know, let's say business because they think that that's where the jobs are at. But if that's not their aptitude and they're a um, second-rate business student, they're not going to be the one who's going to get the internships or the special attention. So what I tell my students is you should major in whatever you're going to succeed at. You want to be the person in your department who, who faculty says, yeah, you got the knack for this. You're great. I want to get, get in your corner. So those students can be humanities majors, they can be English majors or language majors or philosophy majors. Uh, when you're successful, people get in your corner and they back you and they, they, they push you along and, and you'll, get your, you know, you'll get the most out of your university, that's for sure, regardless of what your major is. Do we make a mistake um, by attaching too much importance on potential earning in one's, in one's chosen field, especially at the undergraduate level? That's such a good question. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> um, certainly it's the case that non-humanities majors in the first five years, let's say the sciences or the business majors, they make more money coming out of the gate than humanities majors do. But there's been some good research recently that shows that um, the pay differential is pretty much even out over a 10- or 15-year period. Uh, but what you and I both know is that, I mean, people change careers uh, all the time. And there's really uh, so many variables you're going to be facing over the course of you know, 15 or 20 years post-college. You just cannot predict uh, what job you're going to be at, uh, or not, you know, let alone what you're going to be earning. Well, you know, I was just thinking, uh, you know, could we also pose a contrarian argument? I remember uh, at one time everyone wanted to go to law school and then everyone wanted a computer science degree and everyone wanted to be an engineer and an MBA because those were the fields hiring in the moment. Yeah. And that's not, like you you said, that's not quite how it works over your lifetime. Yeah. And those fields will change right underneath your feet too. You know, you think about where computer programming is at right now. I was just out at Stanford in May uh, talking to people who are doing all kinds of joint initiatives between the computer science programs and the humanities programs because to succeed in programming, you have to have a humanistic understanding of art, culture, life, public consumption of media, and what have you. Um, but I would also say, you know, getting back to the spirit of your question, um, I think it's a mistake for people to go to university and hope to inoculate themselves from the uncertainties of the world. And I do think that when people spend too much of their energy worried about uh, their income, their earning potential, 
Um, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to say, I don't want to have an uncertain life. I want to make enough money to lock myself in some kind of class station. And you're just not going to be able to you know, insulate yourself like that. Um, instead, what you want to do is develop uh, a broad range of skills, the humanities being one of them. I think everybody should have some kind of humanities background regardless of their major. Uh, so that you have that kind of nimbleness, that kind of flexibility, that, that ability to, to move with a changing career landscape. You know, you'll always need to be able to apply experiences in language, in arts, in interpretation and critical thought, regardless of the field. Um, and the earnings will, you know, they'll take care of themselves. Well, t um, following up ever so slightly, do you worry that colleges and universities in general not just specifically Wake Forest, but just in general, are we producing enough lifelong learners? I mean, people that leave universities pregnant with, you know, curiosity and uncertainty. That's a great question. Um, you know, in some ways it, asks, it also asks us to consider are universities out in front of the culture or are they simply responsive to the culture? That's actually even a better question, Sash. <laughs> yeah, you know, one looks around and one wonders, are, are folks out there in general – um, pregnant with curiosity? Are there folks out there in general uh, interested in querying uh, the uncertain dimensions of our, of our world? You know, in some ways, uh, just scanning the headlines and looking at how people represent their political views and what have you, you might be inclined to think no. <laughs> um, there's a lot of shallow noise out there. On the other hand, you scratch around in the Internet, and there's no end of fantastic blog sites and uh, websites, uh, image archiving sites, where you realize people are really trying to understand uh, what it means to live um, with migration, what it means to live, you know, uh, as a, I don't know what, uh, from the point of view of multiple cultures, let's say, people are trying to think about what it means to live with people whose genders and sexualities are different from their own. So I do think there's a real curiosity out there. You're asking about universities, and are universities doing the good work of helping people understand <laughs> uh, that literature, language, film, art, that those are resources for thinking through and thinking with life? I'm not sure they um, always are. I think there's been a, a strong emphasis, especially since the economic turndown in 2008, on uh, giving students some kind of monetary return for their dollar and uh, maybe not enough emphasis on saying this place, this campus you're at for four years, this is a, this is a sanctuary. <laughs> you, know, you come here and there's like no other place in the world. You get to think and you get to dwell with complexity for four years. That's a gift. Um, yeah, I think we could definitely stand to to highlight uh, that aspect of the university. Now, as you were giving your answer, I was just I would have to be thinking. We've had uh, recent incidents uh, in the last year or so, but over the last several years, where certain speakers, you know, people have boycotted and, and demanded certain speakers not be allowed to speak, and that mm -hmm. desiring that safe place, which in which in my view. Uh, the safe place lives between the spotty unicorn and Sasquatch. I don't know where <laughs> I don't know where that exists. So that seems to be uh, the antithesis of the kind of curiosity that you're talking about in your, in your last answer. Yeah. 
Well, that's a really tricky – I mean, you've got two or three questions embedded in that <laughs> one, that's for sure. I mean, the safe space question, if we can put that aside for just a second, I would say about the question of boycotting speakers, you know, on the one hand, I think the university is absolutely the place where you go to encounter complexity and difficulty and difference. And so I do not believe that, um, in general, speakers ought to be boycotted simply because they hold views different from your own. I'm also aware that sometimes people bring in speakers um, whose views are so well known, whose views have been reiterated so frequently, so publicly, that the speaker's visit to the campus is not the introduction of a new idea, but almost like a kind of grenade that's you know, intentionally brought to campus to, to cause some kind of fracas. In that case, the boycott is not a boycott of speech. The boycott is a way of saying, we don't need that kind of grenade here. We want to we talk out our issues amongst ourselves. We don't want things, uh, our issues polarized. So I do think that there's a difference between you know, boycotting speakers versus boycotting um, uh, political polarization, let's say. Let's, let's talk about... Um, uh Nuance, which which we when, yeah. when you and I have talked, you know, I, I view it as a 21st century inward uh, <laughs> th- that we have really no room for it. I wondered how, how how you saw that and what and its importance in the discourse. I think that is a great question of our time right now. Um, it seems to be evacuated from the public sphere. You know, uh, if we just look at people's Twitter feeds and, and headlines and whatnot. And um, I think we wonder, one wonders, in people's private hearts or in their private discussions with their friends and colleagues, is a nuance allowed in? Even in the, you know, when you're in a community with others who do agree with you, is that the safe place where people allow nuance in? Um, tell me more about why you think it's such a, a taboo these days, because I recognize the problem as you described it. Oh, I, I, I certainly think that we've... we've uh gotten into uh, sort of black and white thinking and and, and, and uh, even more I would this leads me to actually my next question with you because it seems to me that it's not enough uh, to be a college graduate but how, but more than that whether you graduate from college or go to college or not I guess what I'm asking, underneath what I'm asking you about nuance is how do we become a more enlightened populace mm-hmm. I mean, how, how do we get more individuals comfortable with the reality that the world is not black and white but Multiple shades of gray. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, again, I'm right there with you. That's that's what I would most value um, with my own teaching. Uh, I think <laughs> I have a few colleagues where whatever it is we're teaching, we always say the subtitle of, of our course is, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can come out of my class realizing, that oh, there's more to it than I thought, um, we're in good shape. I think playing the patriotic card, we can go back in time and recall that from the 18th century and the 19th century forward, uh, so many of our great philosophical resources, I'm thinking in particular about Thoreau, Emerson, Whitman, and among my favorites, William James, but also the great literary writers like Herman Melville, Emily Dickinson. Uh, These are people who had no use for um, simple truth. The American character, the American philosophical character, has no use for easily received wisdom. You know, this is what Emerson says. We don't, we don't need all the truths that we inherit from Europe. Uh, but likewise, we don't need to believe things simply because 
it's coming through our Twitter feed. <laughs> uh, Emerson said, you know, every, I paraphrase now, but uh, every man's situation is a hieroglyphic of a solution to his, to his problem. You know, you can look around pretty easily, pragmatically, and you can figure out by examining the complexities of the world just where it is you stand and, and how you relate to your neighbor and to others. Um, I think there's some room for nuance in that kind of thinking, in realizing, you know, first steps, that um, one needs to open one's own eyes. One needs to think for oneself rather than um, take in and relay things that other people have said. Uh, when you start doing that, then, you know, you, you become responsible for the thought that you're generating, and, and that opens up the space, I think, I hope, for complexity or some nuance. Well, well is this uh, something that you would say is exclusive, uh, a dilemma to higher education, or, or should some of these things, an appreciation for nuance and uncertainty and, and inquiry, should, should we be focusing more at, at the you know high school level maybe or even even before that I mean if you were king for the day how would you adjudicate that Ah uh, that's a great question thanks <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well I would do a lot of other things first if I were king for the day but eventually as I came around to my education policy mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think it's important for us to highlight getting back to those questions of the humanities um, how knowledge is formed in the first place you know. It, it would be useful for students in high school when they're studying history to have that moment where they pause and realize what an historian does. How do we get the information that ends up in the textbook in the first place? What kinds of, you know, who is the archival researcher who looked into medieval Europe and was able to, uh, you know, generate information about bubonic plague, for instance? What were her resources and materials and modes of working? You know, how did that knowledge end up in the textbook? How did the knowledge that, uh, you know, ends up in a literary evaluation of Huck Finn or some such, you know, who did that? How did that work? How did that go? Demystifying knowledge production, but also showing that there are disciplinary methods. There are ways in which people go about, you know, doing their work. Um, I think that could be useful for high school students. Uh, high school students, when they come to college, uh, they get a little, I don't know what, let's say worked up about the problem of knowledge. They're aware that um, objectivity is not necessarily the goal in humanities knowledge, but they also don't want to simply say everything's just made up. They want to know that there are guardrails and guidelines by which knowledge is formed. Uh, so introducing that a bit early on in high school may be useful. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Dean Franco, Director of the Humanities Institute at Wake Forest University. Professor Franco, we are, again, my words, not yours, we're morphing into what I define as a post-truth world. Where, and what I mean by that, uh, for this conversation, that where discourse is framed largely by appeals to emotion that oftentimes are disconnected from any data uh, and facts, and especially those that don't correspond with previous held beliefs or assumptions. And I was wondering, how do you see that? Is that a concern, is that a concern in your discipline? Well, uh, I wouldn't say it's a concern in my discipline in literature study per se. Uh, we've always been a post-truth world <laughs> in, in our engagement with fiction and with poetry. Um, I would definitely say that in the humanities at large, um, I think the humanities are the response to the post-truth world. 
as I was mentioning before, um, the fact is not the privileged unit of information in the humanities. Facts matter. They absolutely matter. Uh, but humanists, be they historians or philosophers or religious studies scholars, we have a lot of tools and a lot of methods at our disposal for trying to understand truth. It's not just that we live in a post-truth world, but that our idea of what is, truth is has been dramatically reduced uh, insofar as it's been um, privatized. You know, truth's been privatized. You don't really need to do a lot <laughs> in order to secure and stabilize that truth. All you have to do is check it against your feeling. It feels true. It's true. I verified it. Done. It's a pretty short, short circuit methodology. But if you're trying to publicize truth, uh, if you're trying to share truth and, and have other people see your truth as true, then you need to bring in other methodologies. Uh, you need to be able to point out your archives. This is where I found my information. Here's the library. Here's the secondary resources. Here are other people who've likewise interpreted what I've interpreted as true and so forth. So I guess what I'm getting at, Byron, is I do think it's not only a problem of a post-truth world, but a reduced truth world. And I do think that the humanity's response is to invigorate and strengthen our concept of what truth is. Well, in fairness, uh, we've always, to some degree, operated in a, in a post-truth world. Uh, I would say famously, uh, conspiracy theories. I think about you know Pearl Harbor. I mean, people said that Roosevelt knew in advance of the attack and the Kennedy assassination. We don't know how many conspiracies we have there. So we, we've had post-truth, but mm -hmm. maybe we've reached a point with the help of the Internet, not blaming it on the Internet, but the help of the Internet, that we're sort of bombarded with that post-truth. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds right to me. You know, I mentioned William James before. James was the great pragmatist, and James believed that uh, truth becomes stabilized when it's checked against experience. And in James's day, experience was largely um, public, and it could be shared. Uh, but if your truth is checked, checked against something that an algorithm on a computer has delivered to you, uh, it's not necessarily public. You know, it's truth for you. So I do think that um, this current information age we live in has uh, reduced the scope of um, the sphere against which we check our understanding of truth. I want to be clear for those for those who are listening. Uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm speaking with uh, Professor Dean Franco, of Wake Forest University. Uh, that at the same time, it's not just um, accepting a mendacious ethos, mm -hmm. but rather post-truth reflects sort of a, a methodology that, uh, again, that that many fear is corrosive to the culture. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, as you uh, – well, we've talked about this before. Uh, as you well know, America was founded, at least in theory, um, on the pillars of liberty and equality. Is it actually moronic to, uh, to be a free, equal, and unenlightened people? <laughs> I stumped the professor. Go, okay. Now, my, my you asked a good question, Byron. My work is done. No, <laughs> you asked the good questions. If I follow you right, you're saying, can you be free if you are unenlightened? Can you be free and equal? Uh, can you be equal when you do not share in um, common set of uh, 
points of information uh, or even information at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in basic practical terms, I don't know how you can function as a democracy if you don't have a there is not a stable resource of information and knowledge that people have common access to or common interest in. No, it's, uh, you know, one of the things I've, I've often said about um, one of the disciplines of humanities about um, philosophy, if you're a business major, you don't have to change your major. But if you're taking business ethics, um, a knowledge of an appreciation for Plato's Republic might help you in a business class. That's just my view. I don't. <laughs> you bet. Uh, you bet. And I think uh, anybody can take a step back from uh, banking scandals and real estate finance scandals and realize that you know a moment's critical thought. <laughs> Um, some reflection on, as you say, Plato's ethics, but others' ethics as well, uh, may be indeed what's needed to to complicate one's relationship to capital. I mean, you and I have talked about uh, Melville, specifically Moby Dick, and I think there are lessons there about the human condition that um, would be applicable to today, just reading Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I've... I'm very heartened by the number of people I've met who are not academics who've read that novel and found something something in it. You know, on the one hand, this conversation we're having suggests that we're in a whole lot of crisis, and I think it's true. I think it's true, but I think there's also a lot of Moby Dick readers out there. There's a novel that, no matter what you go into it for, um, you pretty quickly learn that there's no there's no simple story, there's no simple object of knowledge uh, that, that you are on a journey there. And that whatever you learn and gain from it, um, you know, you become part and parcel of that journey through the reading experience. And, and as I say, there are there are people reading Moby Dick. Oh, the, 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 there are um, lots of us. I'm, I'm, I'm part of that contingency. There, there, there are lots of us. I, I think if you are looking for black and white, you, you'd probably put it down pretty quick. Mm. But, but it definitely forces you to, uh, throughout the journey, to stay in the gray. Yeah. I would add, too, I mean, this is far afield from anything I know, but my sense is that um, in the popular culture right now, there's an awful lot of um, TV programming that that engages philosophically, religiously, morally complicated topics, uh, irresolved <laughs> topics. I'm thinking about something like um, – the TV show The Leftovers, for instance. Is that the name of the show? See, I, I, I was thinking because you had young children at home, you knew that because I, I did not know that. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my guys don't even tell me what they watch. They're, so, <laughs> they're, they're on a different planet. Um, but my point is that there's a lot of TV programming, but also film, but also these sort of short-run, you know, eight-episode programs where there's no moral black and white, you know, um, uh, there is nuance, there is complexity, and people, I think, I, I don't think we're losing entirely our, our desire for nuance, even if it seems to be publicly <laughs> prohibited in, in our most coarse forms of political speech. It seems like we're still finding outlets to encounter it. Well, I, I, I hear you, um, in spite of this conversation, what may leave listeners thinking, is there any hope? Um, I, but what I hear you saying is sort of reminds me of... Um, um, you, you mentioned James earlier, and, I, and I'll throw out I'll throw out Hegel, where well, well, facts for Hegel in and of themselves did not reveal truth, and it's sort of that interconnectedness of 
it's, I guess, doing the work where, where we realize truth. And so I hear you saying those things are still possible in spite of what we hear uh, uh, coursing through the media. Yeah. Look, I think everybody thinks in their own lives that their own lives are complicated, nuanced, demand interpretation. <laughs> uh, everybody, when they reflect on their own lives, has to engage in dialectical thinking to understand, you know, boy, you can't be middle-aged without realizing mistakes. I've made a few. Um, so I think people fundamentally understand that there's more to a life than a set of facts. Um, and somehow or other, we've lost public respect for engagement with that complexity. But I think there's a real, I think it's a kind of human hunger uh, and need for that complexity. I'll tell you one other thing, Byron, too, just if I may. Every time I go out in the world to do anything, whether it's to go to the dentist or go buy a pair of shoes, and I get to talking with whomever I'm working with, people always inevitably ask, oh, what do you do for a living? And when I say I teach literature, people's eyes light up. You know, again, from my dentist to the guy in the emergency room to the guy at the sales counter at the sporting goods store, they always want to talk about literature or language or poetry or a play they saw or something that they've written. So I think it's out there. I think I think even though we've been beating this thing hard, <laughs> uh, we seem to have shunned complexity. Nonetheless, people are still out there engaging. Professor Dean Franco, Wake Forest University, thank you for being on the Public Morality today. That was Professor Dean Franco. Stay tuned as I discuss the latest healthcare developments with Emily G from the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. Welcome back. Since its passage, the Republican Party has deemed the Affordable Care Act as public enemy number one. From President Trump to congressional House races across the country, the mantra was repeal and replace. But the Senate did not have the votes to replace the controversial health care law. So Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is now calling for a vote to repeal the law and to replace it within two years. What are the ramifications to health care policy? What are the ramifications politically? To help us better understand these questions, I'm happy to bring back our health care policy expert, Emily G. from the Center for American Progress. Emily G., welcome back to the Public Morality. Thanks for having me back. Uh, could you begin by explaining the logic to simply uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act with the promise of uh, replacing it something down two years down the road? That's a terrific question. I don't really know if there's much logic to it. Um, what we've seen in the past 24 hours is that uh, Mitch McConnell clearly doesn't have the votes for what they call the Better Care Reconciliation Act, which would have effectively repealed some of the most important parts of the ACA and resulted in tens of millions more Americans being uninsured over the next decade. Um, what the Republicans are now talking about is doing something even more drastic, which would be repealing the ACA altogether um, with what I think is a false promise of then replacing it with some sort of 
a known uh, plan later on. Um, I think both steps would be extremely difficult, so I think it's important that we see this mostly as a repeal um, and the the delay or replacement um, would be even harder for them to achieve. Now, I understand um, they're saying that the Affordable Care Act would, would in effect stay in place for the next two years, but talk about um, the impact this would have immediately uh, close to on, on the current process, the health care exchanges. Sure. So I think it would have immediate impacts no matter how long the delay is. Um, a lot of it has to do with issuer expectations in the market. Um, if issuers know that this is going to be a market that's going to be destabilized, in fact, the Congressional Budget Office previously scored a version of um, a repeal bill that they say would result in premiums doubling over the next decade um, and would result in a th- half of the population having no issuer at all um, in the near future and uh, three, quarter the po- three quarters of the population having no issuer choices um, a decade from now. Um, that's clear an indication that the market's going to be collapsing in most of the country, um, and I think many issuers would be uh, anticipating that far before the the law actually takes effect. So as a result, I think we would expect to see much, much higher premiums um, for the next plan year. Um, even if it were delayed, we expect to see much less issuer participation, um, and as a result, that means that um, you know real people, real individuals and families face higher costs for health care and also uh, have less choices in the individual market. And needless to say, that would have an onerous effect on low income and the elderly as well. Yes, I think those are the people that would be hurt most by any sort of repeal. Um, low income folks receive uh, financial assistance through the marketplaces, both in terms of assistance with premiums as well as uh, cost sharing reductions that help lower deductibles and copayments. Um, the other big hit to particularly the aged and uh, low-income folks would come through an end to the Medicaid expansion under the ACA. Um, that's brought Medicaid coverage to um, about 11 million people uh, since it, the passage of the ACA. In a ABC Washington Post poll that was just taken last week, 50% wanted to keep the Affordable Care Act, while 24% wanted the Republican plan. Uh, and then 63% stated they wanted the federal government to provide health care more so than uh, offer tax cuts. What did, taking those two numbers uh, together, what, what does that tell you? I think there's a real disconnect between what the Republican Party is trying to propose um, and what the American people want. Um, clearly, the, the replacement plans in the House and the Senate are something that have been wildly unpopular I think they were polling around 17% approval ratings, um, and yet uh, that's what Congress has spent the majority of the past six months working on. Um, but, you know, as, as unpopular as the repeal and replace bills are, I think the full repeal would be even more unpopular. Um, I mean, you're talking about an or- on the order of 30 million people losing coverage as opposed to 20 million people. Um, it would you know, completely get rid of Medicaid expansion in a couple of years. Um, a lot of the moderates have said they wanted a, quote, glide path for Medicaid expansion ending. Um, there's no glide path and a complete repeal. In, in your opinion, uh, Emily, are the Republicans in a spot where they just must do something or lose face politically? Is that is that what we are right now? 
it looks like a lot of political choices are driving the the strategy right now. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's hard to say that this is a politically wise thing to do, given the poll numbers that you just cited. Um, but I think there are probably a lot of senators like Mike Lee, um, you know, perhaps Ted Cruz or Rand Paul, who would love to have a vote on record um, voting against the ACA. On, on the other hand, we've seen a lot of moderates like Susan Collins and um, Shelley Moore Capito, Rob Portman, um, express very real concerns about what a bill that uh, you know, even repeals and replaces means for their states um, and coverage in their in their states. You know, I'm tempted to ask you um, what do you see down the road, but I but I'm also uh, uh, fairly certain you're going to tell me you have no idea. <laughs> I'm not sure that anybody, including Mitch McConnell, has any idea what they see down the road. Um, but uh, you know, I think there. Are, Certainly things I think I might see and things that I would like to see. Um, what I think I will see is, you know, I think there's still a lot of um, political pressure in the Republican Party to pass some sort of, or at least vote on some sort of ACA repeal bill. So I, you know, for those of us who are activists and trying to uh, get Congress to preserve health coverage, I don't think it's... Uh, we should not be resting on our laurels and letting up the pressure. Um, and I think, you know, what I think would like to see happen is I, I think there's an opportunity here um, and an urgent need for some bipartisan legislation that would um, secure the stability in the marketplace for next year. Mm. You know, I had um, last week, I believe I had um, uh, economist Dean Baker on from the Center for Economic Policy Research. And he said we were talking about the the, the uh, exchanges where there's only one insurer in certain counties, mm-hmm. and he said that they had done research on that, and that if you were in a county with a Republican governor, I think you had roughly a 25 percent chance of of living in a county in a rural county where there was either one insurer or no insurers. If you lived in a di- uh, uh, a county. The same demographics with a Democratic governor that you had a two percent chance of of being in in, in one of those counties with one insurer or no insurers. So I guess my takeaway is that the Affordable Care Act can work if you want it to work, and if you if you don't want it to work, then you can derail it. That's an excellent point. I think, particularly when looking at the individual market, it's not one nationwide market. It's um, you know, at least 51 different markets, one in each state. And success depends on how the ACA has been implemented. Um, you know, how easy has that state made it uh, for people to uh, both sign up for insurance and for, you know, volunteers um, to help sign people up and do some outreach. Um, a lot of it has to do with whether the state has chosen to take the federal uh, matching funds for Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, folks at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services have found that in states that expanded Medicaid, uh, premiums in the individual market about, are about 7% lower. So in other words, expanding Medicaid actually helps the individual market. Um, in states that haven't done these things, that have put up barriers to enrollment, that have sort of not been all in on reaching out to the uninsured, um, that have not expanded Medicaid, you find that the, in, the individual market struggles quite a lot more. So um, in a state like California, where they've been very active in ensuring that there are good coverage options, that 
um, it's easy for consumers to compare and shop for individual market coverage. You see premiums that are lower. You see uh, participation that's a lot more, um, a lot stronger um, in states like, say, Texas, where, uh, you know, I think it's it's harder for folks to sign up. A lot of people are in the coverage gap between subsidies and Medicaid. Um, there are a lot more struggles to um, get people covered. Emily G. from the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., thank you uh, for helping us make sense of the weeds known as the Affordable Care Act. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. That was Emily G. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me directly at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcast can be found at publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be located on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.